Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad that you are choosing to worship here at New Life today. Uh, you probably figured it out again that I am not with you. I am still in the Holy Lands with a group of people church. We are walking in the footsteps of Jesus. We are seeing everything that we can cram into a 10-day trip. Back with you next Sunday, but like last week, we're going to come together again, and I'm going to do the teaching for this Sunday through um, a video um, that I recorded before I left. Hey, you know, back in 2001, I was a college pastor, and I was doing college ministry with a church in Indiana, and we had a college group that reached about 50, 60 on a regular basis, and, and we had taken the, the students out to a lake. We're going to spend the whole middle of the summer, and we're going to have this lake party and uh, with swimming and, and barbecue and, and volleyball and all, all that kind of stuff. And so we're in the middle of, of a volleyball game, and somebody comes running up to me and said, Joe, Paul's in trouble. Paul is one of our college students, and the trouble that this was referring to, Paul, for reasons that I'm, I'm still unsure he decided to cross the lake and touch a buoy that was way out in the middle and then swim back. He did this all alone. And the problem is he got out there, but he underestimated his ability to get back. And he got about halfway back to shore and he started moving for help until somebody on the shore noticed him. And for some reason they came and told me when I realized that Paul was in that much trouble, I just ran and I jumped in the water and I swam out to him as fast as I could. And by the time I got there, Paul was just about to go under for good. He was panicked, crying, and, and I grabbed Paul, and, and I was winded myself. All the stories that they tell you that, that rescuing somebody is kind of dangerous, they are true because he was grabbing onto me and pulling me under. I mean, he was terrified. I thought he was going to die. Finally, I was able to get Paul to calm down and relax, and, and then I looked back to the shore, and I saw how far that we had to swim, and I got a little bit nervous that maybe I wasn't going to get back either. Well, to make a long story short, um, um, they sent a boat out to rescue us, and then they were able to bring us in. And after we got back to the shore and everybody had started to calm down, Paul thanked me in front of the whole group, and, and he said that I'd saved his life. Well, I don't really know if I saved his life or not, but it was definitely one of those moments that you don't ever forget about. And as I think back on that moment, and I close my eyes and I visualize me jumping in the pool and rescuing Paul, I, I kind of remember it looking like this. But in reality, <laughs> I think it probably looked more like this. Paul made a big mistake that day. He left the safety of the group and he decided to swim across the lake where he had absolutely no business going. And the situation became desperate and he needed somebody to come out there and to rescue him. Well, in chapter nine of the story, we find kind of a similar circumstance. We're going to learn about a family today who left the safety of the group and went somewhere that they should not have gone. Their situation became desperate. Their situation actually became quite tragic, and they probably would have not survived had some not, someone not come to their rescue. 
But it's in this rescue of this family that perhaps we see one of the greatest moments of God's plan of salvation for the entire world. So if you would, please, please open up your story Bibles to page 121. That's where we pick up in the story. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you, in case you're new here today, that uh, we are in a series called The Story. And what we're doing is we are um, studying through the Bible from Genesis to and to do that, we are using this book right here. This is the Story Bible. It takes many parts of the Bible and arranges them in chronological and it's put together so that it reads just like any pick up off the shelf. And here we are all the way up to chapter 9, and we are going to read about the story of Ruth. Here's how it goes down. Are you ready? 121, ready to go? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Imelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. Then the Ephraites from Bethlehem, they were Ephraites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, the story takes place during the days of the judges. Do you remember from last week's message, we talked a lot about the days of, Mo, uh, days of the judges. We read about Gideon and Samson and Deborah and Samuel. There was about 15 judges all, and the days of the judges really, in many ways, were not all that good. Israel was in this horrible cycle. They would follow the Lord, and then they would be rebellious toward the Lord rebellious toward the Lord, God allowed them to be conquered or, or to be, you know, um, uh, pursued by the enemy where they would have to run for their lives. And then God would rise up a judge. He would come in and rescue him or she would come in and rescue him and then and lead. And this was a terrible pattern that they were in for 330 years. Well, what we're reading about right now takes place during that 330-year period known as the Judges. Now, the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, gives us, gives us a really important detail about that day. It says this, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Why did Israel have no king? They had no king because God was supposed to be their king. They had no leader because God was going to be their leader. Do you remember the promise? I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And so this nation was to be led by God. But these people saw it completely different. So Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. So Imelech and Naomi and their two sons, they also did as they saw fit. They left the promised land. Specifically, they left Bethlehem. And they went to the country of Moab looking for a better. They made a wrong decision to leave home. Why was this decision wrong? Why can I say so strongly that it was a wrong decision for them to make? Because Imelech does the same thing that we sometimes do. Even as followers of Christ, we can fall into the same trap, the same debacle that Imelech fell into. And what was that debacle? He chose to live by sight and not by faith. What's the Bible say? We are to walk by faith, not by sight. We're supposed to walk in a way that trusts God and his plan for our lives, not by what we can just see around us. Well, Imelech, all he's doing is he's looking around 
decision. So he decides to walk by sight and not by faith. Here's what he was seeing. There was a severe famine in the land, and he makes a decision based on that famine to not trust God, but to go and do his own thing. There's no evidence in the story that he prayed about it, that he sought wise counsel, that he talked to God or, or anything like that. He just left. Friends, let me tell you something. The most dangerous decisions you will ever make are the decisions you leave God out of. Did you hear me? The most dangerous decisions that you will ever make in your life are the ones that you leave God completely out of and you trust just your own abilities and your own wisdom in making that decision. That is what Imelech is doing, in my opinion. God wasn't included in his decision to move. It was also a wrong decision to move his family the 50 miles to a neighboring country, the land of the Moabites. Imelech and his family, they abandon God's promised land. Do you, do you understand what they're doing? They're basically saying, this is the land that God gave us into our people, and we are going to leave it, and we are going to go find a new home in the land of our enemies. Moab was one of those pagan nations that God told the Israelites specifically to drive out of the promised land. The Moabites are mortal enemies of the Israelites. And in Judges chapter 3, we read just um, how Moab had invaded Israel and ruled over the people for 18 years. And so there's a real question mark here. Why would Imelech turn to these people for help? Everything about the Moabites were absolutely detestable to God. You know what we learn about the Moabites in Psalm chapter 60, verse 8? A really interesting detail. Psalm 60, verse 8 says this, God said, Moab is my washpot. In other words, you know what God is referring to the Moabites as? He's like, they're my dirty water. That's how God viewed, this is how strongly God saw these, these idol worshipers in these faces. Like, they're like my dirty water. Don't have anything to do with them. So this move for Imelech to take his family, to leave the promised land, leave Bethlehem, and to go into the land of the Moabites was just a bad move all the way around. They shouldn't have gone. Okay, look at page 121. Let's keep reading. Now, Imelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. In other words, tragedy strikes this family when they leave the promised land. Imelech, the father, the leader of this entire family, he dies. And then Naomi is left with her two sons and her son's two wives. They're both Moabite women. Then they die, and now all that's left is Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws. And did I say again, her two Moabite daughter 
in-laws who her sons should have never married to begin with because they're Israelites. Can you see that there's just some bad decisions and some bad moves all the way around? But you're also going to see that just because we've made some really poor choices and we've gone to some really bad places, it does not mean that God gives up on you. And it doesn't mean that God cuts you out of his plan. You're going to see how God rescues this family and, and specifically does it through just an amazing set of circumstances. And God still works the same way today. About this time, when her husband's gone and her two sons are gone, Naomi hears that things have gotten a little bit better back home. She heard that God had come to the rescue of the Israelites and that things were starting to turn around for the better back home. And so she says, I'm going home. Naomi must have been like the greatest mother-in-law history mother-in-laws because her two Moabite daughter-in-laws, they don't want her to leave. They're like, please stay or we're going to go with you. And they begged her, we're going to stick together. And Naomi thought better of it. She saw these two Moabite women. She says, you stay here at your home and this is your best chance at having the for yourself. Her daughter-in-law's orphan, she takes her advice, and she but then there's Ruth, and Ruth would have nothing to do with that. She absolutely refused to stay behind in her homeland, and, and she says to Naomi in what could really be one of the most beautiful declarations in all of Scripture, she says, don't urge me to leave on page 121. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. That's some pretty powerful stuff. I mean, in essence, you have Ruth, who's, who's a Moabite, like I told you. She, she places her faith in the God of Israel. That's what she's saying. I'm going with you. Your God's going to be my God. Now, this is an extremely bold declaration considering her background. She was from Moab, where they worshiped the God Shemosh, who accepted human sacrifices and encouraged immorality. So she's going to go worship a God who's completely opposite from what she knows. So when you consider that, it's quite striking. When you consider her circumstances, she could have been so bitter against God. She's, first her father-in-law dies, then her husband dies, her brother-in-law dies, and now her mother-in-law wants to leave her and she'd be all alone. And, and you would think that maybe she's got a little bit of bitterness towards God, but she doesn't. It doesn't seem to make any sense why she chooses, but she does. And not only that, Ruth is coming home to Bethlehem with Naomi. And that creates a potentially scary situation. But let me describe to you why that's a potentially scary scenario. First of all, again, I keep saying this, I don't want you to lose sight of it. Ruth is a Moabite. She is an enemy of Israel flat out an enemy of Israel. 
people are naturally going to have a grudge against her because of her background. It doesn't matter who her mother-in-law is. They're naturally going to see her, and they're going to be turned off by her, and they're going to see her as, as the enemy. Secondly, she's, she's a widow. Life was especially tough back in this day on widows. So Ruth is a foreigner, and she's an enemy of the nation of Israel, and she's a widow. So she's not just choosing to stay with Naomi. She's not just choosing to be loyal to Naomi. She's choosing what is most likely going to be the toughest, most isolated, lonely future that you could ever paint for somebody. That's the choice that she's making. But despite all of that, she travels to Bethlehem with Naomi to start this brand new life with her. And from the lower story, from our point of view, living down here, this seems like it's tragic and this seems confusing. So let's just recap for just a minute. First of all, Naomi and her husband, they make a pretty poor decision to leave the Holy Land, the promised land. And then they choose a pagan land for their new home. Second, her sons, they violate God's clear teaching by, by marrying women from another nation. God said, don't do that. And third, it makes no sense for Ruth to come back to Bethlehem with Naomi. But what Ruth and Naomi at this point in the story have absolutely no knowledge of is that God has an upper story of redemption that is being played out in their lives. God's like, I'm going to do something about the salvation of mankind. And those two, Naomi and Ruth, they are going to play an integral part in what God is doing in his upper story. Nobody can see it down here, but God's got something in store for up here. God made a promise, didn't he, to Abraham that his seed would bring blessing to the whole world. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 12. What you're going to see in this story is that Naomi and Ruth are directly linked to that original promise that God made to Abraham all those years ago. The Bible tells us that Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem during harvest time. And this is good for them because it provides for them an opportunity for these two poor widows to earn just a little bit of money. Now, there are some instructions that God laid out for situations kind of like this. According to God's instructions, wealthy farmers were required to let the poor in their area glean from the fields. So basically what that means is this, that the poor among them, they would follow up behind the harvesters and they would pick up any kind of scraps that they happened to miss. And that was theirs to keep. So Ruth convinces Naomi to let her go glean in the fields. Now, this sounds simple, but it's actually quite a risky move. Let me paint the scenario for you. Here is a single woman gleaning in the field all by herself. This presents a certain amount of risk. Not only that, she is really an enemy of Israel. So you've got a single woman who is an enemy of the state and that alone would make her the target of some harassment at a minimum or even worse, something much greater than that. Maybe to help you kind of understand what this might be like, imagine with me today that you have a woman from the Middle East 
dressed in a burqa. You know, that head to toe, and all you can see is the eyes. Everything else is completely covered. And she stopped to pick up leftover corn in a farmer's field in Iowa. That's what this would this would be like. Can somebody say that that Homeland Security is at least going to get a phone call over something like that? that? That's the same kind of situation you have here. So on page 123 of your story Bibles, it says that she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turns out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Imelech. In other words, if you didn't catch that connection, she is gleaning from the land of her father-in-law's family. A coincidence, maybe, or God's handiwork on display. I would say this, that I don't think that, that Ruth just happened by accident to, to, to be gleaning from the field of her father-in-law's family. I believe that God was directly involved, and I would say this, God is more directly involved in your everyday lives, more than you would ever imagine. I I would think that if we actually knew how much God was involved in our comings and goings and everyday stuff, it might be a little terrifying. God's very involved. he's, He's all over this. Let's keep reading. Just then, page 123, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, and he greeted the harvest. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Wash the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Now, listen, not everything that we just read is going to register in our minds. This is a different part of the world. It's kind of a different system. It's a different culture altogether. But basically what this is describing is that Boaz is a good man. That's what was just described here. Boaz is a good man, and he is showering Ruth with kindness. This is not a great time in Israel's history, but how good is it to know that God is good people living in bad times. If you were to read the book of Judges, all of it, from the beginning to the end, you might draw the conclusion that all the righteous had perished from the earth. But there were still people like Boaz who knew the Lord and they sought to obey his will. Boaz was concerned about his workers and he wanted them to enjoy the blessings of the Lord. The very first words recorded out in Scripture out of Boaz's mouth was what? He greeted his harvester and said, the Lord be with you. Boaz is a good man. And the Bible tells us that Boaz let, let Ruth eat with him that day. He orders his men to let her gather from the sheaves. So he changed her position. When she gets to gather from the sheaves, that's the good stuff. That's not the stuff left behind. That's the good stuff. And to pull out even some stalks 
for her from the bundles. Bo, Boab basically, in today's language, Boab's hooking her up. He's, he's absolutely hooking her up. He's taking care of her. He's making sure that she's well provided for. And at the end of the day, Ruth runs home to Naomi and she tells her all about her incredible day. And when Naomi hears about Boaz's kindness, she gets a vision for what the future could be like. And Naomi turns into Naomi, the matchmaker. She sees a future here and she goes, you know what we're gonna do? I'm gonna tell you what we can do. Because Boaz has been so kind to you, here's what we're gonna do. Look on page 124. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. We read that, we're like, whoo, that sounds interesting to say the least. But don't worry, this is not at all as seductive as it may sound. Now, I will say that to wash, put on perfume, wear her best clothes, and also take her Kenny G collection with her, then it might have gotten a little more interesting. But in reality, during this time, this behavior that we're reading about was actually a respectful, nonverbal way of communicating her availability and interest in marriage. That's what she's doing. She's basically just very respectfully saying, hey, Boaz, I'm available. You can marry me if you'd like to. If you look on page 125, here's what happened next. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer. If you're somebody that underlines things, underline that word, guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showered earlier. You have younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. What is it exactly that Ruth is asking of Boaz? She says, she says spread the corner of your garment over me since you are my guardian redeemer. The word in Hebrew for garment is also the same word for wing. So Ruth is saying, Boaz, I want to come under your your wings. I want to be under your wings as your wife. That's what she's saying to him. Now, earlier, if you were to read back in Judges chapter 2, verse 14, you would read how Boaz refers to Ruth as coming under God's wings. That's how he first refers to her. Now Ruth is desiring to come under Boaz's wings in marriage. She's like, I'm coming to you. I want to be a part of your family. I want your wings. I want your garment spread over me. I want to be a part of your life. Then she says to him, 
You are a guardian redeemer. The law of the, of the guardian redeemer, some translations refer to this as the kinsman redeemer. This law is found way back in the book of Leviticus chapter 25. You can go back and read it sometime if you want. I won't give you all the details right here, but essentially a guardian redeemer is a relative who pays a debt that someone else is not able to pay. You might think of it like this, that the guardian redeemer is a rescuer. That would be an appropriate way to think of this. He's a rescuer. He rescues the family. He saves the family name by paying the debt that the other family member is unable to pay. Now, let me just draw a natural parallel from this moment to Jesus. This is a natural parallel from what Boaz did for Ruth and what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. You know, Jesus is, is referred to at times as our guardian redeemer. If you were to go back and read Hebrews chapter 2, it describes the work of redemption that Jesus did for us, that Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood for us to redeem us, to save us from something that we could not save ourselves. He redeemed a debt. He paid off our debt of sin. He took it upon himself, and in that same kind of way, he became our kinsman redeemer, our guardian redeemer for us. So what Boaz is doing for Ruth is very similar to what Jesus has done for us, paying our debt and coming to our rescue. It says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did Boaz show such kindness to Ruth? That is a great question. That's a question that, that, that almost demands for an answer. Why would Boaz do for Ruth? He is under no obligation to. He is uh, uh, looking at her as an outsider. Um, you know, he owes her nothing, really. Why in the world would Boaz do this beyond that he's just a good man. Here's something that I need to point out to you. In the very first page of the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 1, we find a genealogy of Jesus. Basically, it's a, it's a genealogy tracking all the families to Jesus. And as you read through that genealogy, you discover something quite interesting. Do you know who Boaz's mother was? Boaz's mother was Rahab. Now, do you remember Rahab from just a couple of weeks ago? She was the, the woman that hid the spies in the city of Jericho, and she was the one that said, please remember me when, when your armies come. I, I've, I've heard about the armies of God, and I believe. And so she hung a scarlet cord out of her window, and when the walls of Jericho fell down, her house, which was located in the wall, it was safe. That Rahab, that one right there, who would later go on and join the Israelites into their movement into the promised land, that Rahab is Boaz's mother. Boaz has an example right in front of him of when the Israelites took in this foreigner and rescued her. And I'm wondering, perhaps, maybe Boaz looks at Ruth and sees his mother to some degree, that he can be for Ruth what the Israelites were for his mother. 
interesting. Ruth and Boaz, they go on and they have a boy together. And it's this little boy that we, it's in this life of this little boy that we begin to really see God's upper story starting to take shape. They named their little boy Obed. Obed grew up, now catch this, and he had a son named Jesse. Jesse grew up and he had a son named David. That's right, that David. The David who would become the king of the Israelites. 28 generations later, a little baby named Jesus was born in a stable in the town of Bethlehem. Catch this. God went out of his way to include an outsider, a pagan Moabite, into the lineage of Jesus. And for me, this is a clue that God's salvation would be for all people. You know, right now your story may seem a little hopeless. You you may have walked in here this morning, a little bit of dread, a little bit of fear, a little bit of hopelessness, wondering, how am I going to get out of this? How is God going to help me? Does God even know what's going on in my life? Maybe even feeling a little bitterness in your mouth as to what has transpired and you feel like maybe your life has turned into this soap opera where it's crisis after crisis and constant relational turmoil. Can I just give you a little encouragement here? Remember, if we love God and we align our lives to his purposes, then God will take care of us. Reminded of the promise in Romans 8, 28 that says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And I see that being played out in Ruth and Naomi's lives. Did they make a lot of mistakes? You better believe they made a lot of mistakes. But did God still include them in his plan of salvation? Absolutely. There's not a one of us in this room today that hasn't made a lot of mistakes, myself included. But I'm thankful that because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he became for me and for you our guardian redeemer, that the mistakes I've made, the drama I've allowed in my life, the soap opera that wanted to the world out of my life was resolved at the cross. The Lord Do you believe? Do you want him to be? Oh, it's available to you if you'll humble yourself before the Lord and follow him.